The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. For the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at James chapter 2 and what James has to say about saving faith. We saw that he's really not in conflict with the teaching of Paul on justification by faith alone, but he's dealing with a subject that's different than what Paul's dealing with. Paul is talking about getting saved eternally, and James is talking about saving your life from the damaging effects that sin has on a believer. Now, James closes this epistle by saying that not only are we to walk in obedience, he tells us to be doers of the word and to save our lives from damage, but we also are to note how others are doing. And when someone errs from the truth, James says we're to go to them and help turn them around. The last two verses is, my brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, I think what James is telling us here is we are all called to be lifeguards. Okay? How would you respond if you saw someone drowning? Let's say you're at a pool, you're at the beach. Would you try to help? Would you call someone? Or would you simply just walk away? Now, it can be dangerous because you could end up drowning with this person if you don't know what you're doing. But I think most of us would try to do something, get somebody, do something, because it's a matter of life and death. And we care about people and we value life, so we try to do something. When I was a teenager, I worked as a lifeguard in the summers. It's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. You know, you basically get to sit around and... You know, for a teenager, it was a perfect job, I'll tell you that. But I worked at an indoor pool for a while, and uh, I pulled several kids off the bottom of the pool. They would go off the diving board, just walk off, and right straight to the bottom. They couldn't swim, but they went off the diving board. I don't know why, but it was a 15-foot pool, and I would dive down and pull this kid up off the bottom, and like, don't go back in the deep end again, kid. You had to tell them that, because they would have went right back off it again. So I pulled a bunch of them off the bottom of the pool, and without a lifeguard there, those kids, they would have been dead. They'd have just drowned, all right? When my daughter, my middle daughter, Julie, was a toddler, we were at my mom's house on the deck of her pool, and I'm doing something, had my back to her. I'm a dad. I'm not that attentive. You know how that is, right? (laughs) Well, the pool had a solar cover on it, and Julie must have thought it was solid or something, so she just stepped on it and went right under. Well, I turned around, and she's gone. Well, the cover comes right back over, so... I just thought, did she leave? Did she go back down the stairs? Well, I walked over and lift up the cover just to check, and she's at the bottom of the pool. So I jumped in, pulled her out, and I saved her life. What a great dad, right? <laughs> I saved her, but that's not a heroic good thing to do for a dad. So what, what you're saying is a mom never would have let her go on the pool, right? Okay, I get that. All right. But dads, we like to have, we like to save people, so we let them get in trouble, so we, so we can save them. <laughs> I think any of you, any one of you, have done the same thing. We'd be quick to save somebody because we value life. We just do. Well, what's true in the physical realm 
James is telling us should be true in the spiritual realm also. And when we see somebody that is in spiritual trouble, that we should seek to save them. We should be a lifeguard. We should be attentive to this, and we should be able to try to help them. In the epistle of James, James warns believers of the death-dealing consequence of sin. And that's basically James's whole thing. He's trying to tell us, listen, believers, sin will damage your life. Okay, you might think it's fun, you might think you're getting away with something, sin will damage your life. He says in verse 14 through 16, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now this is a good verse for people who really need the devil. You can show them, listen, the devil doesn't have to come around to tempt you because men are tempted by their own desire. And then James explains that then desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. So you start desiring things you shouldn't, it leads to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Sin leads to death. Now, he's talking here about a physical death because of the amount of sin. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So James is telling us that sin is serious. It leads to death. And James talks about the same idea in chapter 5, and verse 12 through 20, In verses 13 through 18, he says that sin could bring judgment in the form of physical sickness or death. He exhorts the believers to confess their sins and to pray for one another. And then in verse 19 through 20, he continues the theme of judgment, talking about the fact that sin could bring death. So he goes from sickness, first of all, in verse 14, he says, Is anyone among you sick? He's talking about a physical sickness here. Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I don't think that this verse is teaching that whenever you're sick, you should call for the elders and have them put oil on you and pray for you. And I don't think most people interpret it that way because you don't see it happening a lot, right? Although I have been in churches where, you know, if you're sick, they got the little olive oil out and they put a dab on your forehead and, you know, and you were supposed to get better. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Look at the next verse. He says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Now, I don't think this is referring to the elders praying for this individual here. I think, he says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. What's interesting here that you don't see in your translation is the word prayer here is yuhe, which doesn't translate as prayer at all, really. It's more the idea of vow. And that word yuhe is only used two other times in the New Testament. If we look at those, it helps us understand it. In Acts 18, 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a yuhe, a vow. Now, you can't put prayer in there. That just wouldn't fit at all. But vow fits. That's what it's talking about. In Acts 21, 23, Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under ayuhe. So in both these verses, the word vow is translated from the Greek word yuhe. And it's not translated that way in our text. And I was only able to find two translations that use the word vow in our text. So there are some translations that pick up on this. The Apostolic Bible Polyglot, which you may have never heard of, but it says, and the vow of the belief will deliver the weary one. 
Now, the apostolic Bible polygod is an interlinear Greek-English Septuagint and New Testament Bible, which is very useful for discovering how the Greek vocabulary in the New Testament compares to the Old Testament Greek. You can check that out. Um, So it's a helpful translation. I also found the modern literal version, 2019, says this, and the vow of the faith will save the one who is weary. So there are some translations that get it right. And that's why it's important to use multiple translations in your reading and your studying so you can hopefully get the entire picture. I think that what James is saying here is that the vow of faith will save the sick one. And I think this refers to a public vow, and the vow is to turn from their sin. This person is sick. This sickness is because of sin, so they're making a public vow, I'm going to turn from my sin in order to be healed. Now, the word sick here is the word kamno, which is also an unusual word, and it's only used one at a time in the New Testament, and that's in Hebrews 12.3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary, that's our word sick, or kamno, or faint-hearted. So basically, what I'm saying here is the modern literal version got this verse right, all right? It's the vow of faith that's going to save this weary one, this one who's struggling here with this problem. Well, James talks about sickness, and then he moves from sickness into death in verse 20. Let him know whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So verse 19 and 20 are a continuation of verse 13 through 18. But they're also a fitting conclusion to the entire letter because James is telling us by turning from your sin, you can save your life. Now, throughout this whole letter, James has exhorted the believers on how to save their lives from the damage that sin brings. And now he adds they can also be involved in saving others from the damage that sin brings. And he's telling them, and I believe he's also telling us, that we are to be spiritual lifeguards. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Now, my brothers here, he's writing to believers. These are people who know the Lord. And he says, if anyone among you. So what he's talking about, and this is important, he's talking about the people you are in contact with, the people you are in fellowship with, the people you know. This is not some stranger you don't have any contact with. It's someone, anyone that is among you. Any believer in the fellowship. We see that same thing in James 5, 13-14. Is anyone among you suffering? Well, if they're among you and they're suffering, you should know it. And so that's what he's talking about. Speaking about someone you're in contact with, someone you have fellowship with, we're supposed to understand and know about what's going on with those people. Wanders from the truth. The word wanders here is the Greek word planao, and it means to roam from safety, from truth, from virtue. It means to go astray, to err, to wander, to be out of the way. And what they're wandering from, he says, from the truth. So he's speaking about any departure from the truth as set forth in the Word of God, whether it be doctrinally or practically. You know, truth is not just something to be believed. We're to be, we're to be obeying the truth. Uh, Galatians 5.7 says, Paul, Paul says, <clears throat> you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? It's not something you just know, it's something you obey. And 1 John 1.6 says, 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we're not practicing the truth. So the truth is something, believer, we're to know and we're to live out. We're to act on what we know to be true. And so James talks about this person wandering from this truth. So what he's telling us is there's a every a very real possibility that members of the family of God can stray. Is that something you understand? Something you can relate to? The hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, has a line in it that says this, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There is a tendency on the part of all of us to stray from the truth. And I hope you understand this, because there are many people that they don't understand this. Many think that if someone is a true Christian, they'll never stray from the truth. They'll always do what is right. This is, I think, a result of some of the Lordship teaching. Because the Lordship says, well, if you're a Christian, boom, you just automatically live right. I'm just confused about why all the exhortations in Scripture for holiness, if you just, all you got to do is be a Christian and it's automatically going to happen to you. Obedience, people, in the Christian life is not automatic. Lord, I hope you know that. And it's not guaranteed, okay? So let me ask you this. Could a Christian allow sin to reign in their life? Can sin reign in the life of a believer? Some people would say, most people would say no. Christian, you know, because again, the Lordship teaching, you're Christian, you're going to live holy, you're going to live righteously. Well, let's look at what the Bible says in Romans 6, 12. It says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Now, the word reign here is from the Greek word basaluo, and it means to exercise kingly power, to exercise uncontrolled authority. The verb is present, active, indicative with the negative me. And this construction forbids the continuous of an the continuation of an action that's already going on. So we could translate this, stop allowing sin to reign as king in your mortal body. It's a command to stop an action that's already happening. Sin was reigning. And believers, sin will reign if you let it. It takes discipline, it takes diligence, it takes persistence to keep sin from reigning. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27. He says, so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The word disqualified is the Greek word adakimos, and it means rejected, worthless. Paul says, I don't want to be disqualified, so I discipline my life. He says, I discipline my body. All right, this is a, a cool Greek word. The word here is hupopiazo. Anybody know what that means? Hupopiazo. It, it means to hit under the eye. Okay, Paul says, I punch myself in the face to try to keep that body in control. I'm like, down body, listen to me, do what I tell you. You're not taking control. Hopefully, people, you understand this. Your body will take control if you don't keep it under control. It has to be disciplined. Hupo piazzo, to hit under the eye, to lead captive, 
to lead as a slave. So what we have here is a description of a disciplined man. The Christian, like the athlete, has to discipline himself in order to be what God has called him to be. Paul went to great efforts to keep from sinning, to keep sin from reigning in his life. So what happens when a member of the body strays? Does James say to criticize him, to ostracize him, cut him off, turn your back on him? I know. Gossip about him. Tell everybody else what he's doing. No, James doesn't say any of those things. He says, and someone brings him back. Now, the King James Version says, and one converts him. That's not a good translation because there's nothing here about evangelism. He's talking about a believer, and he's talking about turning around someone who's straying. So who is to do this? Well, it's someone who's aware of it, someone in the fellowship, someone who knows this person. It's really all our responsibility when you see someone who's straying to help them. Again, we're lifeguards. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So the ones who are spiritual, the ones who are walking in the Spirit, walking with the Lord, they're to do something about them. Go to Him in love, seeking to turn them from their sin and restore them. He says, and someone brings Him back. This is not an exhortation to this important duty, but rather this text assumes that the task has been achieved because somebody cared. I jumped in the pool and pulled my daughter out because I love her. I didn't feel a duty to do that. I didn't think, you know, my wife will probably be mad at me if I don't do this, so I better do this. No. I love her. I wanted to get her out of there, all right? I'm not going to let her drown. And I'm sure that all of you have heard the story of the boy who was trudging through the ghetto with a crippled boy on his back, and someone said, how can you carry such a heavy load? And the boy responded, he ain't heavy. He's my brother. When you see a brother or sister who's falling, it is our responsibility to go to them, to pick them up, to support them, to encourage them, and to help them back to the truth. Paul put it this way to the Philippians, Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. All right? Look out for the interest of others. If we're so wrapped up in ourselves that we don't know what it's going on in everybody else's life, how can we help them? How can we care for them? We really can't. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The word consider here is the Greek word katanoeo, and it's a compound word composed of kata, which means down, and noeo, which means to exercise the mind. So it has the idea of thoroughly and carefully noticing someone or something. A good English equivalent would probably be contemplate. That's a strong and emphatic exhortation. Consider others, he's saying. Contemplate others. Our responsibility to others is a theme that we see throughout the Scriptures. I think it's mostly ignored, (laughs) but we are to be involved in each other's lives. Now, this means you actually know this person and know something about them. Okay, it's not you going to talk to someone you never talked to before, but you think their life's messed up, so you just want to go bud your nose in. Okay, it's not about that. Okay, let's look at what some of the scriptures say about this. What I want to point out here is the one another 
verses. All right. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another. You can't do that if you're not around one another, if you're not with one another. Romans 12.10, love one another. And then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Romans 15.14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. You're able to instruct one another. The word instruct here is nutheo, and it means to put in mind, to caution, to reprove, to gently warn. It's the idea you go to them and you're, you're telling them, listen, what you're doing is, is dangerous, it's hurtful, it's wrong. You, you have to stop this behavior or stop this thought pattern. Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. This should be posted at the head of every chat room that's on the internet. You know, people would just, some, something about being behind a keyboard, not face to face, you know, makes people think they can just be as rude as they want to to one another. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. All these one another verses, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Therefore, encourage one another. Now, how do we fulfill any of these one another commands to receive, love, comfort, forgive, if we don't consider one another, if we're not around one another, or if we're so wrapped up in ourselves that we don't even know what others need? How do we fulfill these? Here's what we need to realize, I think, as believers. That individually, you and I, are personally responsible for the physical and spiritual welfare of each other. It's a family, and we're supposed to be caring for one another. And this exhortation to consider is not given to church elders. It's given to all believers. We're to be considering each other. We're to look to the needs, the problems, the struggles, the temptations of one another. But the problem is the spirit of rugged individualism that's so prevalent in America, that's wholly incompatible with the church of Yeshua the Christ. And I think most Americans think that they have discharged their responsibility to the Lord because they individually are living holy. And that's important, but there's more to it than that. We're not only to look out for ourselves, we are to consider others. Christians have a corporate as well as an individual responsibility. Christianity is others-oriented. But most of us care only about meeting our own needs. We ignore the many instructions in the Bible about being responsible and helping care for others. Galatians 5.13 says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore encourage one another, build one another up. The kingdom of God is not designed for believers to exist in isolation from each other. We are interdependent. We need each other if we're truly going to be what God has called us to be. Romans 12.5 So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. Each believer has unique abilities, insights that are invaluable for building up other believers in the body of Christ. 
So basically, Christianity should be lived out in community. And God has created us to be dependent both on Him and on one another. God said in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. And that principle doesn't only apply to the marriage relationship. None of us has the spiritual wherewithal to go it alone in our Christian lives. We really need one another. Proverbs 27.17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You get together, you share ideas, you help perfect, you help sharpen one another. And as we live our lives with each other, we sharpen and encourage one another. Solomon put it this way, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, he has not another to lift him up. And that's true in the spiritual realm. We need each other because that's how the Lord created us. We're to teach, we're to serve, we're to bear the burdens of one another. Now, notice the purpose of considering one another. We looked at that in Hebrews 10.24. The reason we consider one another is to stir up one another to love and good works. The word stir up is from the Greek word paroxysmos. And it's a strong word implying a real effort to provoke each other into love and good works. Now, this word appears only one other time in the Scripture, and that's in Acts. Acts 15.37 says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them from Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, And Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of our Lord. Now, sharp disagreement here is paroxysmos. And it usually means irritation or exasperation. It's unusual to have it used in a good sense. And the choice of this unusual word, I think, makes the exhortation even more striking. We do provoke one another a lot by irritating and exasperating one another. We do that. All right, but we don't usually provoke each other to love and good works. We provoke to anger, to jealousy, to envy. When is the last time you were provoked to love and good works by another believer? Or when is the last time you provoked another believer to love and good works? And again, how are we to provoke one another to love and good works if we're not around one another? Well, he goes on in in this verse, in the next verse in Hebrews, to say, not neglecting to meet together. So if you're not meeting together, it's kind of hard to know what's going on. It's kind of hard to exhort, to encourage. On the negative side, he said, we shouldn't forsake our assembling, because we can't help each other much if we don't see each other. But on the positive side, he said, when we come together, encourage one another. The Greek word for encourage here, parakaleo, It means to encourage, to comfort, to beg, to beseech. It speaks of coming alongside someone to help them. So when you get together, we're to encourage one another, we're to build one another up. Peter and James both put it this way. James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's working. So when we get together, we should be confessing our sins. We should be encouraging one another. We should be praying for one another. 
I remember at an early prayer meeting a while back, many years back, <laughs> that uh, we had a, a man who had just became a Christian, and he was in our midst. And one time in prayer meeting, he stood up and shared that how much he appreciated some of the other men sharing their faults, sharing their failings, which we don't do too much. But this is what he says, confess your sins one another. Why? What's the point of that? Well, he was encouraged because he thought, am I the only one who has problems? You know, but he found out, no, everybody struggles. You know, but we put on this air like we got it all together. You know, you're the only one messing up. Everybody else is doing just fine. And that's, that's not how it is. So we're to confess our sins to one another. We're, we're to be praying for one another. Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So not neglecting to meet together. What, what does Hebrews 10.25 mean when it says this, not neglecting to meet together? Well, the assembly called for here, I don't think this is Sunday morning church attendance that he's talking about. Okay, I really don't. Because we don't see these things happening on Sunday morning. People confessing their sins, people praying for one another, you know, a lot of the things that he talks about here, confessing your sins, calling for the elders of the church, these don't usually happen on Sunday. And what usually takes place, well, no, I guess I can't say that. I was going to say what usually takes place is teaching. What should be taking place is teaching. That's very important. We can't abandon that. But this verse doesn't say we assemble to be taught. It says we assemble to exhort one another. And I don't think this effectively can be done in our current church services, the way they function. How much provoking one another to love and good works and confessing our faults to one another and praying for one another happens in most modern churches. We come in, we sing some songs, we hear a message, and we go. We don't usually question each other about our sins, about our victories. And if someone should ever question a person about a sinful practice in their life, they get defensive, they get hostile. You know, our Christianity is just very shallow. Let me, let me share with you something that will help us see the, just how shallow it really is. The writings of the early Methodists, and I say early because the Methodist church is a mess right now. Okay, They have forsaken the faith. They've walked away from the truth. They ordain homosexuals as pastors. They, just, they are messed up. But this is, this is an early view, okay? And they had this thing called the Rules of the Band Societies. It was an early Methodist meeting which consisted of no more than 12, couldn't have more than 12 people, and no less than two. This was drawn up on December 25th, <laughs> Christmas Day, just so that you see what the, they're not worrying about their presence, they're, they're worried about their spiritual life. On December 25th, 1738, this was drawn up. And it gives us insight into this group's transparency. The design of our meeting, they say, is to obey the command of God, confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. <clears throat> so they wanted to fulfill this command. And he says, to this end we attend. So here's the rules of the band society. Number one, to meet once a week at the least. Secondly, to come particularly at the hour appointed without some extraordinary reason. In other words, you show up unless you got some really good excuse for not being there, okay? Not my favorite show is on. Three, to begin those of us who are present exactly at the hour with singing and prayer. 
In other words, we start on time, we're not wasting anybody's time. We get there, we start. Verse 4, to speak each of us in order freely and plainly the true state of our souls with the faults we have committed in thought, word, or deed, and the temptations we have felt since our last meeting. Number five, to end every meeting with prayer suited to the state of each person present. Number six, to desire some person among us to speak his own state first, and then to ask the rest in order as many searching questions as may be concerning their state, sins, and temptations. And they say, any of the following questions may be asked as often as occasion occurs. What known sin have you committed since our last meeting? (laughs) How would you like these questions to be asked, okay? Yeah. What temptation have you met with? What, What have you been dealing with this week? How were you delivered? Number four. What have you thought, said, or done at which you doubt whether it be sin or not? So think about this. How would you like to be involved in a group like this? Now, to tell you the truth, I have mixed emotions. I would love to be involved like this because it's, it's real accountability. All right? But on the other hand, it kind of scares you. You know, this is serious stuff. This is not playing church. This is the type of assembly that I believe the author of Hebrews is talking about. You get together and you're questioning each other. You're sharing with each other. You're being real. We don't tend to be too real in the church today. It's we put on this front, I'm perfectly spiritual, read my Bible every day, got it all under control. That's the vibe we want to put forth because that's the vibe everybody else is putting forth and we don't want to, you know, we don't want to mess up what's going on there. So we just try to act like we're perfect. Um... That's not true. But before we can build one another up, there needs to be an understanding of each other's spiritual needs. It's hard to do that if we're not together and we're not spending time together. Only close relationships and small groups, I think, provide a context where this can really happen. You know, you get in some big churches, it's easy to slip in, slip out. Nobody even knows you're there. doesn't matter if you're there or not. That doesn't happen here. Okay, we know if you're here. We know when you're not here. Okay? <laughs> And I think that's important. I think the smaller the group, the more you're going to be able to understand what's going on in each other's lives. But we assemble for the purpose of provoking one another love and good works. The support of love of Christians for one another is a powerful factor in maintaining our spiritual vigor. If we follow this prescription, we're going to be able to live victorious lives to the glory of God. Because we're encouraging, we're helping one another. And we can't consider others if we don't spend time with them. Where we can share intimately, talk to them, find out what's going on in their lives. And this is one of the purposes. We have an early prayer meeting before a service so we can talk to each other, we can pray for one another, we can find out what is happening in each other's lives. That's the only way we're going to know if someone's struggling with something. And James says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James says the result will be that we'll turn a sinner from the error and save his soul from death. We'll cover a multitude of sins. Now, James uses death broadly here, and we have to understand that. He's not referring only to physical death. If this person sins, they'll be dead. That doesn't always happen that way, all right? 
He's also talking about a death-light state that exists when people don't respond to the truth. In other words, it's like a death to fellowship. You're not in communion with God anymore. Your sins have blocked it. And we, I think we've all experienced this kind of death. You, you know, you just kind of drift away from God, and you get into boredom and frustration and emptiness. It's a consequence of disobedience. You know, God doesn't kill us every time we sin, and boy, we all should be glad of that. There'd be a lot more graves around here, all right? God puts up with a whole lot, but I'll tell you, sin does have a payday. And James says when someone wanders from the truth, we're to go to that brother. We're to lovingly seek to restore them, and we can literally save their life from death and cover them all to the sins. And please understand that physical death is very often spoken of in Scripture as a consequence of sin. We don't like to think about that, but the Bible talks about that. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight 28-30. Let a person examine himself, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body of Christ, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, some translations here put some sleep. Well, you're talking about death, all right? So we have people that are weak, we have people that are ill, and we have people that are dying because of their sin. 1 John 5, 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. There is a sin that does not lead to death. So there are some sins that you know lead us to death and some don't, all right? Some are worse than others. People think all sin is sin. That's not true. Some sins had the death penalty. Some sins did not have the death penalty. Um, you know, some sins bring death on their own. For example, sexual sin. You can contact some kind of disease or you can mess with the wrong person and their spouse kills you, okay? The same thing with murder. You murder somebody, you're going to get caught. In this day and age, you're going to go to the death penalty. Or again, you get a relative that straightens it out for themselves and they kill you, okay? So there are sins that lead to death, okay? James here talks about saving their life. And he uses the phrase here, sozentensuke, which is a standard and normal way of saying to save the life. Sin is very serious, and it can lead to death. To turn someone from sin to obedience is to save their life. Maybe they're not going to physically die, but I, I keep stressing this. If you're living in sin, your life's going to be miserable. It's supposed to be that way. Because as a Christian, you're called to obedience. Now, those two actions, salvation from death and forgiveness of sins, these are the actions of God. Only God can save us life from death, and only God can forgive sins, and yet we're given the privilege of being co-laborers with God in this endeavor. We can do what He is doing in the lives of people. We can share with them the ministry of restoration. And James closes his epistle by saying that not only are we to walk in obedience, be doers of the Word, and save our lives from damage, we're also to notice how others are doing. And when someone errs from the truth, we're to go to them. We're to seek to turn them around. We're to care about them. James ends this epistle very abruptly. There's no benediction. There's no doxology. No gesture of farewell. 
It's as though he doesn't want to deflect our minds from the privilege and responsibility of caring for one another. So he just drops that at the very end. So let me ask you, who do you know that has erred from the truth and have you done anything to try to restore them? Sometimes we think, oh, they're just messed up. We don't know what God will do unless you try. Well, let me give you an illustration here with the analogy of a lifeguard. To be a good lifeguard, you have to be alert. Okay? I mean, lifeguards, you have to be paying attention. You're th- that's what you're there for. Your eyes have to be on the water. You have to be watching people and see what's going on with them. The same thing with us. We need to consider one another's if we're going to notice that they've erred from the truth. We have to be alert as to what's happening in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Secondly, a lifeguard's got to be in good shape. Okay? You know, it can be rigor, especially if you're lifeguarding on a open water. You know, you got to swim a ways. You got to wrestle with these people. You you got to be in decent shape, okay? Um, and the same thing with us. We need to be in good shape spiritually. If our lives are a spiritual mess, how do we help other people? Thirdly, we need to be trained. You know, if a lifeguard doesn't know how to save a drowning victim, he could lose his life trying. A lot of people have. Because when you swim up to a drowning victim, the first thing they do, they wrap their arm, they grab a hold of you. That's just the instinct. Okay, now you're both going under. So when you take life-saving classes, they teach you how to break holds. Because that's part of it. Someone's going to grab you, you break that hold, okay? And then you grab them and... Carry them back, all right? Use a chin carry or a hair carry, and you're, you're toting them back where they can touch the ground, all right? You've got to know how to do that. In the same way, spiritually, we have to be trained in the Word of God so we can deal with people. We can share with them what the Scripture says. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. We need to know what the Word of God says so we can help one another. Galatians 6.1 again, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you are spiritual. Restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. I love that he says, restore him in the spirit of gentleness. In other words, you're going there saying, look, this is not good. You're not, see, you idiot, you shouldn't be doing this. You know this is not, no, we're, we're gently trying to get them back. We need to be trained in the Word of God if we're going to help others. And fourthly, we have to be close by. You know, a lifeguard's got to be in the proximity to see these people and to be able to get to them. And the same is true of us. We have to be close enough to someone to be able to have some kind of influence on their life. And this closeness only happens, again, by spending time with that individual. The body of Christ is desperately in need of more lifeguards. Because sin is serious. And it's destroying many. Being a lifeguard's not easy. But I think the benefits are fantastic. He says, we will save a life from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's amazing. The opportunities we have, the things that we can actually do to help one another, turn them from a life of destruction. Now, before we close this morning, I need to address the elephant in the room. (laughs) Anybody have a clue what I'm talking about? I'm talking about those of you watching online. All right, many of you, you don't have any fellowship. You don't have anybody you're in contact with. 
You're sitting at home in your living room and you're by yourself. And you're watching because you don't have any local church. And I would encourage you, try to find a local church. And I know many of you said, I just can't do it. It makes me sick. I go in there and they're talking about the devil. They're talking about futurism. And I, I get that. I do. I get that. I could not sit under that nonsense. But maybe there's a church that's not so far off that you can get in and have some fellowship. It's just important to be with other Christians, to have that contact. But I know it's really important to be with like-minded Christians, and that's not so easy. So I understand why some of you don't. But I think you should do all you can do to be in contact with other believers. In other words, seek to build relationship with other believers. Have others over to your home. Many people who are watching live, they do this. They have other folks to their house, and they watch Brian live together. And then afterwards, they discuss it, and they talk to each other about it. That's cool. Start a Bible study if you have no fellowship. Reach out to people. You say, well, I can't teach the Bible. That's okay. Have them over to your house and play something. And then talk about it together. You know, an effort has to be made. I share with you about my friend, Steve, who passed away recently. And Steve was in an area that he had no fellowship. There was nobody to believe what he believed. He was alone. So he started putting things on Facebook, teachings, throwing it out there, trying to stir things up. You know, he got a lot of comments. And finally, after doing this for a while, people said, why don't you start a Bible study? So he did. And that Bible study brought him so much joy. He would call me and just tell me what happened. We were going for hours. These people are so hungry. These people love the Word of God. He just, you know, they had no clue about any of these things until I'm sharing with them. And they're asking me, where are you getting this crazy stuff from? You know, but they were thriving on it. And so he had this wonderful fellowship in his home with these people because he made an effort. We need to share preterism with others. And by doing so, we might have some fellowship. We act like we got the plague. People, we don't have the plague. People treat us like we have the plague. We have the truth. Okay? And if you don't think it's the truth, then you shouldn't be here. All right? But to me, it's just the plain, simple truth. And if we share this with others, if we're brave enough to do that, who knows what's going to happen? Some people are open. I don't know why we'd be afraid to share the Word of God. People who are ignorant need, <laughs> they need truth, right? Let me share with you an encouraging story it happened to me this week. I got a call this week from Mike. Didn't know Mike from Adam, but he sent me an email. I really would like to talk to you. And, you know, then he called me the next day and I couldn't talk, so I called him back later. So I called him back and we start talking. And he told me that he had spent thousands of hours studying end times from a dispensational point of view. You would need that much time because it's such a confusing view, okay? But so he just felt like, I really got this, you know, I understand end times, I got, I got a handle on this, this is really good. Well, then he said, I saw a podcast with the title something about, are the end times what people say or whatever. So, you know, piqued my attention. So I tuned in and I listened to it. And I was on the podcast and I was dispelling the whole end times thing. And he goes, I was just blown away by this and you recommended Glenn Hill's book. So I bought Glenn Hill's book. I read it one day after I got it. I ordered 10 more and started handing them out. I talked to my pastor about this. I talked to this person, and the pastor was very receptive, which I was surprising. But he is just, let me tell you something. Mike is in his early 70s. He's retired, 
retired from working, but he's a full-time evangelist in the sense he's just sharing with everybody he can share with. He is so excited about preterism. He's like, this is just so exciting, the truths of the Word of God all my life, and now I see all these things. He belongs to a community in Florida where it's like 3,000 people live in this, you know, community, and he got permission to send an email to every one of them inviting to a Bible study. So he's, he's serious. He's, he's making fellowship. He's going to reach out to people and share with them and get people in. So I had a good talk with Mike. We talked for a good long while. Well, immediately when I got the phone with Mike, I called Ron. Mike's from Florida. Ron's from California. And I told Ron about my conversation with Mike. Now, why did I do that? Because Ron is the guy who had the podcast, who invited me on to speak. So I shared with him what was going on. He was really encouraged. He said, thanks so much. I had a rough day. This is really an encouragement. You know, because that's the reason he did the podcast. He goes, I want people to wake up. I want them to hear the truth. And so he said, will you come on and talk about end times? And I'm like, sure, I'll do that. And so I did. And here's a guy. We don't know who else was affected by this. But here's a guy whose life was rattled and changed, you know, because of this. So I talked with Ron for a while, and I got off the phone, and as soon as I got off the phone with Ron, I immediately called Bonnie in New York. Because Ron, at one point, was doing some business dealings with Bonnie in New York, and Bonnie told Ron about Brian Bible Church and about preterism. And so Ron became a preterist and got excited, and he's been following us and listening to us. And so I'm telling Bonnie, hey, that guy you shared with, He's sharing with others, and now this guy, Mike, is sharing with everybody. He can so it, you see how it just goes on, and it snowballs. And they both were like, oh, thanks for letting us know this, because this is encouraging. And it is encouraging. So I'm, in a sense, trying to encourage. Yeah, I've never met Bonnie. I've never met Ron face-to-face, but I know them because I talk to them. You know, because, and I don't think we have to be in the same room to get to know one another. I had a very close relationship with Steve Morgan. We had met one time for about two hours. We had lunch together. We each drove two hours because he was at some convention. And we met, and we had that's the only time we really met. But we talked so much, you know, I just felt like I knew him. And so when we went down there before he died and spent some time with him and his wife, we just, we just clicked, you know. We knew each other. And I think we can know each other a lot through conversations. We don't have to be face-to-face. Sometimes face-to-face even hinders that. You know, if you're just honest and you're talking to people. So here's a couple people, you know, Ron and Bonnie, that are just excited over the influences they've had and who knows how far it goes. And what I'm saying, people, is if you don't have fellowship, work to create some. If nothing else, we can talk to each other on the phone. We can encourage one another. Those of you that came to the conference, you met people you never knew before. Get some phone numbers, encourage one another, talk to one another. Have somebody you can call when you're having a bad day or when you need some fellowship. Someone you can share your life with. Again, Christianity is others-oriented. And so we have to do whatever we can do. I got a letter from a a lady this week. She's in her 80s, and she says, I just, I'm in the desert because I, I can't, you know, churches, I'm hard of hearing, and, and it's just in my 80s, and most people don't, you know, the stuff the church is teaching, I don't want to be even involved in it, you know, and people are just hungry. And I think a lot of us, we know people like that, and we can make a phone call once in a while, and just say, hey, how you doing? 
What can I do to help? How can I encourage you? Talk about you know, the Word of God together. Share with one another. Don't let physical presence be a hindrance. Like I said, Steve, Steve and I were about as close as two brothers could be without being with each other. You know, you just develop that relationship. So those of you that are watching live, you don't have any fellowship, my heart breaks for you. I want you to have fellowship. That's why we're doing Brian Live, to try to minister to you, but you need contact with people. So work to meet others in the Preterist community. Get each other's phone number. Talk with each other. You know, do Facebook. What's that? Live? What do you call it? FaceTime. FaceTime. <laughs> You can look at each other. I don't know. That to me is a hindrance. I don't want, don't look at me when you're talking. <laughs> but you, I mean, we just don't have an excuse today not to be involved in one another's lives. I mean, like I said, people that live in other countries you can communicate with and share with. You know, Ron's in California and we talk and, you know, Bonnie's in New York and it doesn't matter. Now there's a guy in Florida who's on fire for the Lord because Bonnie shared with Ron, and Ron had a podcast. And, you know, it just, again, don't limit God. Let Him use you. Be a voice. Stand up. Speak up. Share with people what's going on in your life. Share with them what the Bible says. Preterism is a very exciting eschatology. We're not waiting for doom. We're not waiting for gloom. We're not waiting, you know, for the tribulation to go through and be murdered. You know, we're not... (laughs) It's over, and we're excited. We're in the kingdom of God. It's a victorious eschatology. Share it. Who knows what God will do? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would start a revival within your church, your people. Shake them up, Lord. Give us a desire to care for one another, Lord. Give us hearts of compassion and love for each other that we would want to see each other thrive. Help us, Lord, not to just focus on our own selves, but on those around us. The way we can encourage them, support them, lift them up. And Father, I pray for those who watch Berean Live that they just don't have any fellowship. Lord, I just ask you to help them to do what they can do to reach out to others. Start a Bible study. Start talking to other people, just even on the phone, to build relationships, Lord. Father, I thank you for the church. It's an amazing, beautiful thing. Your body, one body in Christ, Yeshua. May we reach out. May we be bold, Lord, with the truth you have shared with us, that we can bring others to the truth also. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Someone said, Doug says, you and BBC are my church. And I know that's true for so many people, and we want to be, you know. But again, (laughs) everybody can't do that. Uh, Everybody can't just come visit. I wish they could. Dan Harden says, always appreciate the terrific music. Cool. No, I didn't like the 
And I know a lot of people out there feel like this is your, this is their church, and I appreciate that. But we got to work to, you know, get more than just like tuning in and watching us. You know, we want to want you to get hooked up with somebody else that you can talk to and share with, and you know, and that's like I said, that's just really important. Gary, is there any way we can brand? Facilitate these people getting together. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. Um, question? Is there a way we can facilitate helping some of these people to hook up with each other? Well, we talked about doing, you know, getting a list and putting it on the website of all known preterists and where they, where they live. But you got to get permission from people to. Well, there is one of the. T- Tony Denton has a list. Um, I think Mike, the guy I was talking, he was just telling me about this. That Tony has a list of preterists around the country, and he can help you get in touch with someone if you want to do that. But I think you know things like at the conference. You know, you meet people at the conference you never knew before, and then you keep in touch. You call them, you talk to them, and I know that's happening because I've talked to some of you that, that that's going on there. You're, you're meeting new people, and you're talking to them. You're meeting people from here. You're being in communication. You know, we we met John and Ren. You know, at the conference, never saw them before, you know, and met them and fell in love. And they're coming down in a couple of weeks just to hang out with us for the weekend. So, you know, that's cool. That's what we want. We want to build a community, even though it's, uh, you know, very expansive because we're not in the same area. Stan? Kind of fits in with your message a long time ago. The, uh, what do you call it? A Crusaic uh, joy, uh, Jesus, others, and yourself. <coughs> Across it, yeah. Across, yeah. Jesus first, other second. You know, that's that's how it should be. But most of us, it's yeah. us first, Jesus second. <laughs> that's how that's how most of it goes. Uh, Dana says, "Thanks. We are a small group, but hoping to grow." Yeah, they got a small group going in California. They get together, they meet, you know, and. It doesn't have to be a big group, people. Small, the smaller the group, I think it's better because you actually get to talk to one another, spend time with one another, find out what's going on in each other's lives. And I just, I would just so encourage you to, you know, make that effort. You know, the, I know a lot of you don't have fellowship, and that's, like I said, that's a hard thing. But you got to make some effort, and who knows what the Lord will do. Anybody else? All right. Oh, someone asked me, what was the podcast called? I don't even know. Shame to tell you, I don't even know. Um, I can try to find out, I guess, and let you know. Get a hold of Ron and see if... Do you remember the date? No, I don't remember anything. (laughs) That's why I was surprised that this guy, you know... I I don't know. I'll have to talk to Ron. Ron doesn't normally do, I don't think, even a religious podcast. It's more like uh, history or stuff on the Constitution or stuff like that. So this was kind of different, and maybe that's what happened. You know, who's just not talking about end times, and you know? What's the name of his podcast? I don't know. Not much going on. He asked me to do it, I said yes. He said, here's how you do it, click here. I clicked, and we were communicating with one another. And, you know, all the details... My wife gets on me about that. What are the details? I don't know. I don't care. Okay, hold on a minute. Ron just text so we get some answers. The podcast, I guess, is We Are Not Living in the End Times. It's on the Untold History Channel. 
There you go. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate the help, brother. <laughs> Sorry for being so ignorant here, but the Untold History Channel is where it can be found. Is we are not living in the end times. Ron is listening. And I believe that. Yeah, Ron is, Ron is with us today. Good. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate that. Okay. Well, that was convenient. Yeah, I know. That <laughs> okay, I answered that. What is, what is a podcast? See, that's really cool. You know, I mean. <laughs> All right, someone says, I haven't gotten a current list of preterists around the country, so if you can send me one, that would be great. I don't have one, Jan. I don't have a list. Okay. <laughs> no, Tony Denton. Like I said, Tony Denton has some kind of community that he's put together, and I think how it works is if you email Tony, he'll contact someone in your area and want to know if you can, you know, he's, he's very discreet about it, he doesn't just tell you anybody that's around you. I, I don't know. Tony. <laughs> Call Jeff. Jeff will give you all, Jeff will answer all your questions. All right. Um, Is Tony watching? I don't know. Very doubtful. I just, he said, someone says, you need to come to the Bahamas for a conference. I'll pack my bags today. Just let me know when, okay? <laughs> I'm always open to go to any tropical place. And, uh, boy, to go to the tropics and preach, that would be just amazing. Okay, I was waiting for this question. All right. Hey, Dave, Chris from Uniontown, Ohio. You mentioned Hebrews 10.25. The specific context was talking about the eminent day of the Lord, which was eminent to them, not to us. Some of them were reluctant to meet together due to the persecutions they were enduring at that time. Thank you for your teaching. I know. I agree with that. It says, listen, the text says, don't forget the saking, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together as the manner of sums, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So, yes, in that, I know, they were specifically dealing with them, but all of us shouldn't forsake the assembly. We need each other. That's not saying, oh, that was only, you know, you only should have had church before the Lord returned in eighty seventy. No. It's very important to our spiritual lives. Don't forsake the assembly. So much more. They were to do it more because the day was approaching. Is James talking about people who are going back to Judaism, straying from Jude? That could have been part of it. Absolutely could have been part of it. I don't think it's exclusive to that. There's a lot of ways to stray from the truth, but James is writing to Hebrew Christians. Someone says... There's a chat room within your live broadcast. We can be proactive to exchange contact information with these others there. Yes, you can. And I know many people come on the chat. Some people don't. But if you get in the chat, you can actually talk to other people who believe like you. And who knows? You know, you may find a friend on the chat room, and then you can, you know, communicate, talk to each other. Um, during the message? Yes, during the message. You could say... Look, did you hear what he said? What an idiot he is, you know, and you can communicate back and forth like that, you know. They don't get the advantage of doing that here. They have to be quiet and listen, okay, where you can do all that stuff. Uh, some Dana says, thanks to all of you at Berean, 
You are a real support to us and encouragement. We want to thank all of you for the hard work. Keep it up. Thank you, Dana. Appreciate that. And yes, it's a, it's definitely a team effort here. There's a lot of people involved and, and making